Well, if you watched the Super Bowl last week, you probably caught the moment uh, where uh, Travis Kelsey lost his temper. Uh, he yelled at Andy Reid, his coach, uh, gave him a little, little body shove there. And, uh, and you could look at that and you could say, well, you know, it's the Super Bowl. You know, it's, it's the big game, lots on the line. You know, passions run high. Your girlfriend's watching. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's okay, right? Um, uh, but, but I think it's in those moments, those stressful moments, where uh, somebody bumps us and what's on the inside comes out and character's revealed. Now, uh, Coach Reed, um, he didn't chastise Kelsey. He didn't, he didn't bench him. He didn't, you know, uh, make him sit out. Instead, he used him. He put him in. And, uh, and the result was they won. And so at the end of the game, you, you see uh, Kelsey and, and Coach Reed celebrating together. All's forgiven. Everything's okay. Um, despite anything that may have happened during the game, we won, and that's what matters. And, and really, this is a, kind of an accurate reflection of the culture in which we live, and that is that winning is more important than character. Winning's the most important thing, and it doesn't matter what you are so much it matters what you do produces something valuable to other people. It's what you do that matters. Now, uh, Christians, we're not, a, we're not a, a product of our culture. Christians are, are a product of the kingdom of God, and that means that there's a countercultural aspect to what it means to be a Christian. Um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, the Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. A Christian is something before he or she does anything. And we have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. Being precedes doing. That's what the, the gospel points us to. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It begins with these eight statements. We call them Beatitudes. And really, uh, they're about defining the character of a person. As we sit at Jesus' feet, we're called to be with Jesus. We see Jesus' disciples sitting with him. They're with Jesus, and now Jesus begins to open his mouth to teach them, calling his disciples to become like him. And then after the Beatitudes, we get into the portion of the sermon where Jesus is instructing, instructing action, action, doing. Do what Jesus did. But being precedes doing, and being matters. And, uh, and, and so uh, put the Beatitudes aside for, for just a second and think about the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. God gives the law to his people, these 10 rules. And uh, if, you, if you don't remember what they are, that's okay. Uh, the first one is have no other gods besides him. Uh, the, the second is make no idols to, to worship, excuse me. Um, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Pre uh, treat his, his name as, as holy for what it is. Uh, 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 honor the Sabbath or, or uh, um, uh, follow the Sabbath. Um, fifth, honor your father and mother. Uh, six, uh, don't kill, right? Do not commit a murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't, um, uh, what, don't, uh, what's, what's the ninth one? It was just a test. I, I know. <laughs> it's right there. It's right there. I, I, the first sermon, I got this completely right, and I didn't mess up once, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but uh, yeah, number nine is uh, don't bear false witness. Don't steal and don't lie about your neighbor. And lastly, don't cover your neighbor's stuff. All right, so these, these 10 commandments. Now, 
later in, in the sermon, Jesus is going to, uh, to pull a couple of these out, and he's going to put them under the microphone and saying, uh, microscope, and he's going to say, it's not so much about doing it as it is about character. The, the Ten Commandments are given by God not so much to govern action as they are to define the character of the people of God. Character matters. Um, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is put to the test. He's asked this question. What's the best commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important one? And Jesus' response is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus does is he looks at the Ten Commandments, and instead of selecting one and saying this is the best one, instead he sums them all up in two. Love God and love your neighbor. That's what they all come down to. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can see the, the first five are an orientation towards God and, and how you worship him and nobody else and how you treat his name and how you honor the Sabbath and how you honor your parents like you would honor him. The first five are an orientation towards God in love. The second half of the Ten Commandments, you can see, are how you're oriented towards your neighbor. You don't kill him. Right? You, 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 don't, you don't sleep with his wife. You don't steal his stuff. You don't lie about him. You don't, you don't want what he has. Like it's, these are all neighbor-oriented. So within the Ten Commandments, you see this vertical orientation of love, and then there's this horizontal orientation of love. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that in Gen Genesis 3, in the fall, what our parents, first parents, Adam and Eve, really did was they exchanged love for power. That all of our relationships between God and one another and self and creation, they were supposed to be relationships of love. The currency that was exchanged was love. Instead, we chose power in all of those relationships. Something happened. So what Jesus is getting at here through these Beatitudes is a reorientation of character. And, and just like with the Ten Commandments, what you see in these eight Beatitudes reflects love of God and love of neighbor. So let's read them together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did, did you catch the shift within those beatitudes between an upward orientation, a vertical orientation towards God, and a horizontal one towards neighbor. In, in the first four beatitudes that we've looked at, what is required of us is to go to God empty-handed. We got nothing to bring to God, nothing to offer him, nothing to give him in exchange for love and acceptance or mercy or anything. We come empty before God. This is poverty of spirit. And what we had, we need to mourn over. The fact that we exchanged love for power and our relationship with him and everybody else, the consequences that that has brought into our own lives and to the world around us, this is something to mourn over. We mourn over our sin. And as David talked about a couple of weeks ago, that with this attitude of meekness, we, we, we seek to walk beside God, not to pull him along, not to assert our control or authority over him, but to simply walk beside with him. And, 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 and then we, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, for who and what Jesus is himself. This is all an upward orientation. This is all the character of somebody who, who wants to love God. 
But now in the, the fifth beatitude, we'll look at verses 8 through 10 the following weeks, but this week we're looking at verse 7. And verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful. God doesn't require our mercy. This is not an upward orientation. This is a neighbor orientation. This is to one another. To be full of mercy towards one another. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's what we're going to be focusing our, con- our, our time uh, together on this morning. And so, um, to break it down a little bit, uh, there's sort of three parts to the mes- this message. The first one is this. We're going to look at um, mercy. What is it? What is mercy here that, that Jesus is describing? Secondly, um, how is it demonstrated to others? There is a real way to get this wrong. There's a real way for us to see this as a way of earning something from God. We can see this in a very legalistic way. Lastly, how does it describe a thriving life? Uh, remember that this word blessed that we see translated here is this Greek word makairos, and it means flourishing, thriving, fruitful kind of life that's being promised. How is this, this, this aspect of, of mercy lead to a thriving kind of life? So let's get into to mercy. What is it? Um, this, is, this part's broken down into four subparts. You could say mercy is, is something only that originates in God. Mercy comes from God. He's the originator of it. Uh, secondly, um, the relationship of mercy to grace. What is the relationship between mercy and grace? Thirdly, what's the relationship between mercy and forgiveness? And lastly, we need to look at what mercy is not. Mercy is not. Uh, so mercy being a, is an attribute of God. It's found there first. Um, Jones writes this, when we interpret the term mercy, we must remember that it is an adjective that is applied specially and specifically to God himself, so that whatever I may decide as to the meaning of merciful, it is true of God. It's true of God because it originates in him. God sees his people as people who have chosen power over love. And he sees the damage that it's done to us. And he sees our sad, pitiable, fallen, broken state. And, and his, his action toward us is first to extend mercy toward us. When we look at the Old Testament, a lot of people think that the Old Testament is just full of the wrath and judgment of God. But if you notice that what precedes wrath and judgment is always mercy. That in every instance, mercy is extended by God to people first. And only when it's rejected do you see wrath come down. You see this especially in the prophets, and, and you see the words of God through these people like Hosea, who said, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Because I'm merciful, that's what I expect to see in you. And from Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Therefore, because God is merciful, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to Walk humbly with your God. Mercy originates in God. It is not found in the natural state of any fallen human being. Naturally speaking, you and I, on our own, apart from God, we are not merciful. We're not merciful apart from God. In our culture, we see that when one finds himself in a position of power over someone else, particularly someone who has wronged them, what we see is that we instinctively go not to pity, not to mercy for the offender, but rather we find revenge delicious, we find retribution satisfying, and we find condemnation gratifying. That's where we go to. 
Instinctively, think about it. Your child disrespects you. Where do you go in your heart? Your spouse breaks a promise to you. Where do you go? Uh, Your coworker takes credit for work you did. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Like, whatever it is, somebody offends you in some way, what's the first instinct of your heart? Is it to sit back and be like, man, I wonder what's going on inside their heart. Like, I, I wonder... I wonder what they're struggling with today. I wonder, I wonder what, you know, I wonder what's going on. That, do we extend mercy? See, mercy is a recognition that there's something broken there. Instead, no, we, we go directly to judgment. Mercy in, 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 in an average person, in a human being, a natural human being, it's not found here. It has to come from somewhere else. Mercy originates in God. Look, if you're looking at your relationships and you're finding a bunch of broken relationships around you, then, then maybe stop looking horizontally and start looking vertically. Like, what's, what's broken between you and God? Look there first. Um, mercy's only found in God. Second, mercy is understood as it relates to grace. Maybe you've heard it put this way, that um, mercy is not getting what you do deserve, but grace is giving a gift that you don't deserve. That's good, but I don't think it goes far enough. D.A. Carson writes this. Uh, the two terms are frequently synonymous, but where there is a distinction between the two, it appears that grace is a loving response when love is undeserved, and mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. So grace and mercy have the same source of love, but grace reaches out to somebody who doesn't deserve it, and mercy reaches out to somebody who is in a sorry, pitiable state they need because of their mercy. Um, Richard Lenski puts it this way, the, the noun, elaus, that, that's the Greek word that we translate as mercy, always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress, these results of sin. And charis, that's the word we translate as grace, always deals with the sin and guilt itself. The one extends relief, the other pardon. The one cures, heals, and helps, the other cleanses and reinstates. When Jesus says to us, blessed are the merciful, he's telling us to reach out and see a person's state apart from God and all of its brokenness and messiness and all of its unhealth and and see just the need that is there within them, beneath their actions, to look at the heart and what's going on, to recognize grace is is part of God's forgiveness, but mercy is also another beautiful part that we can't skip over. How does mercy relate to forgiveness? Well, it really answers the question of who we're supposed to extend mercy to and in what way. Forgiveness. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, he tells a story about forgiveness, and uh, it's prompted by a question from, from Peter, one of his disciples, who asks, um, basically, how many times should I forgive somebody? And Jesus' response is, well, there's not an end. But he tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. You should not have had mercy or ha- and you should not, not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers and he, until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mercy and forgiveness go hand in hand. And it's really easy to look at this story in a legalistic way and get it wrong. We'll come back to that in a second. But look at the master. The master is given a loan and this servant has gone off and he's blown it. It's gone and it's a huge loan by the standards of the day. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge loan, and this guy's lost all of it, and there's no chance he's going to be able to repay it back. And so, in order to recoup his losses, the master's gonna have him thrown in prison, his family and possessions sold, he'll get something in return, and, and the first servant begs, he pleads, give me more time. I can get it back, right? Which he can't. But the master looks at him and he has pity. In other words, he sees his sorrowful, horrible, messed up state. He has pity. His heart is bent towards him. And so he forgives the debt. Now, it's important to understand that this doesn't mean that nobody pays. You need to understand the master's paying. The master is absorbing the debt of the person who made the loan. The master's absorbing the debt. So then this guy who's had his debt absorbed by somebody else. He goes out, finds somebody who, who owes him like a, some pocket change, essentially, grabs him, starts choking him, and demands to be repaid. Well, I can't pay, so sends him to jail. Now, when the master finds out, you could look at this and say, well, here's, here's a master who's saying, well, because he wasn't merciful, I'm going to withdraw mercy from you. It's not what happens. Well, we'll talk about that more in a second. But this is a, a parable. It's a story that really describes sin. And if you haven't guessed it by now, the master is God. And the servants are you and I. We're, we're servant number one. And, and we, because of a rebellion against God, because of, of the relationship that we were meant to have with him, we exchange love for power over relationships with him and a relationship with one another. And we use God and we use each other and we use ourselves and the, me- the mess that's been created because of sin. And we're called before God to, to make repayment for what we've done, but we can't make it. We can't pay it. And so the master absorbs the debt. See, this is Jesus Christ who comes and takes on flesh and he lives the life that you can't live and he goes to the cross to pay the penalty that you can't pay. And he imputes to you his righteousness while he takes on your sin and he absorbs the wrath of God in your place. This is the gospel. This is the mercy of God on display for you and for me because God saw us where we were and he saw our brokenness and our our need and his heart in love extended toward us. This is what Jesus did for us. That's why from the cross, we hear him crying out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's calling for mercy to come down on the very people that are killing him. And mercy for us. 
John Stott writes, justice cries out for punishment, but mercy for forgiveness. We cannot separate the judgment from God from who he is. But mercy extends first. You know, one of the things I find interesting about um, Old Testament worship is that the, the children of, of Israel, they come out of Egypt and they're, they're traveling through the wilderness and, and God instructs this portable temple or this portable tabernacle to be built, right? And it's set up and all the people are supposed to encamp around it and then the glory of God comes and dwells in the midst of his people in this holy of holies sort of place. But in that holy of holies sort of place, there's this box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's this wooden box. It's overlaid with gold and inside of it are the Ten Commandments that we just talked about a little while ago. God's law, which is meant to define God's, God's people, their character. But on top of this law, the, this, this box, there's a lid. Do you know what the lid's called? It's called the mercy seat. It's not called the judgment seat. It's called the mercy seat. God is just. We don't separate that from who he is. But when he sees us in our state apart from him, he extends mercy first as demonstrated through Jesus. Mercy first. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the merciful God that we have, and he's poured out his mercy on us. What is mercy not? We need to understand what, what mercy is not. Mercy is not saying no harm done. Mercy is not, well, we won the Super Bowl, so everything's cool. Mercy is not, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Mercy is not just sweeping things under the rug. Mercy is declaring, this is wrong. Mercy acknowledges guilt. Mercy says, this shouldn't have happened. Mercy is a statement that this is not the way things are supposed to be. It acknowledges guilt, but instead of extending judgment, it extends something else. Forgiveness. I want to be clear here this morning. When you're called to be merciful by Jesus, Jesus is not telling you to pretend like the bad that's happened to you didn't happen. He's not telling you that. What he's reminding you of is the mercy that you've received. That despite that other person, that's what they need. It's not saying it didn't happen. Let's talk about this extension of mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How is mercy demonstrated to other people? So uh, this is one of those beatitudes we could really get wrong pretty easy. If you separate this beatitude from the rest... If you take it out of context, then what you walk away with is legalism. What you walk away with is, well, if I give mercy to somebody else, then God will give me mercy. I can earn mercy by giving mercy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Jesus, go back to the, the, the parable that Jesus just told about the unforgiving servant. We could say that the reason that the master took away the forgiveness given to the first servant was because he wasn't forgiving of the second. What we should be asking is, why didn't the first servant forgive the second guy? Why didn't he? Because what had been given to him in grace and mercy didn't really hit home. It didn't really change him. 
it, it, it didn't bring him to a place of repentance and acknowledging the grace that he was being given through this master. In other words, that the love of this master bestowed on him in this great act of mercy and forgiving his debt, it never changed who he was. He wasn't repentant. There's a reason why mercy is the fifth beatitude and not the first. Because we have to orient ourselves to God first. We have to come to him empty with nothing first. Poverty of spirit. We have to mourn over our sin first. We have to be willing to walk beside him, be led by him first. We, we have to hunger and thirst for his righteousness and become like him first. Only then have we reoriented ourselves toward God. We've received his grace and mercy. Then we can be merciful to other people. You can't be merciful in and of yourself. You can't, you, you don't have it. Mercy comes from God. You have to go to God to get that kind of mercy. You're not going to have it. And, and you might ask, well, well, I know good people. I know really good people. They don't have a relationship with God, but I see how they treat the poor, and I see how they treat you know, the, the people who are in addiction. I see the mercy, acts of mercy that they give on people every day, yet they don't have a relationship with God. Where does that come from? The truth is that that, that mercy, it's not mercy. True mercy comes from God, it's received by someone who's repentant, and then it's given to somebody in need. Mercy that doesn't come from God isn't mercy. It's quid pro quo. Mercy that doesn't come from God is, 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 is given based on what you get back in return. Uh, mercy that doesn't come from, from God, it's a loan given on, 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 on future return. It is more mercenary than mercy because it's based on a reward. And whether that reward comes from karma, from, from, from the universe itself, or whether that reward comes from some God they don't want to name or do name or whatever, or whether that reward comes from, from their fellow human beings who slap them on the back, or, or whether that reward just comes from here. I just feel really good after I give. The reward. Mercy that is done based on reward, that's not mercy. See, mercy comes from God. And what does God get in return for his giving us mercy? Nothing. True mercy gets nothing in return. He pours out this mercy on us. It begins with him. And we, if we are repentant, if we come before him empty and in need and embracing him as Savior and longing to be changed, then, then the mercy is poured out for us and then it's poured through us to other people who are in need of it. Lastly, how is it that mercy received then given leads to flourishing? How does this beatitude really describe a thriving kind of life? Um, mercy recognizes that though we're pitiable, sorrowful, broken, diseased, because of God, we're not without worth. We're not without worth. Worth and value are, are an important part of, 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 of who and what we are. When we talk about what it means to be created in the image of God, there's a value and a worth that we're talking about. If you recognize that God is this being of infinite worth, he, in and of himself, is a being of infinite worth. That kind of worth is intrinsic, meaning he's just, he's worthy just because he's God. Intrinsic kind of worth. And yet he, he creates these human beings, and he imparts his image to them, and he gives us 
intrinsic kind of worth. Human beings, before you ever do anything, have worth. You're a being of worth long before you do. You're a being of worth whether or not you win a Super Bowl. You're a being of worth because God has made you in his image. That's why we fight for the rights and the lives of the unborn children. Because they have worth before they do anything. Intrinsic worth. But we're also beings of instrumental worth. When God told our first parents, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, he's giving them purpose, he's giving them responsibility, he's giving them a job to do. And it's through that, that instrumental kind of worth that we see them act. Now, God has made us for a purpose. But in Genesis 3, we exchange love for power, and, and the result of that is shame. Adam and Eve looked at themselves, saw that they were naked, and felt shame. Where had their worth gone? Their worth covered broken, mired, shame. So when we look at one another, we see how one another are naked. We see the brokenness. We see the misery that's, that's hidden there, but we see it in ourselves. Uh, Jordan Peterson is a, a psychologist. He wrote a book called uh, uh, 12 Rules for Life. At the time that he wrote this, I don't believe that he was a Christian, though he quotes from the Bible quite a bit. But he says something interesting about, about our view of worth in others, but especially of ourselves. And the illustration that he uses is that of medication. People who uh, don't take the medication that they're supposed to. And he looks at uh, people who have kidney disease. And if you have kidney disease, what unfortunately that means is that your kidney stops filtering your blood and uh, you have to go on dialysis where you know, several times a, a week, depending on how bad things are, um, you have to go and, and have a machine filter all your blood for you. It, can, it takes hours and hours. Um, if, you're, if you're going through kidney failure, um, this is a, is a state of misery, prolonged misery, because it consumes your life. And you might have to do dialysis for months and even years while you wait on a donor list, while you wait for a new kidney to come available. And if, you, if one comes available and if you get selected and, and if that surgery is successful and it works, then, then comes the medication. Um, there's a, an anti-rejection medication that you need to take because your body recognizes this new kid, kidney as something that doesn't belong there and so attacks it. Your body has to, has to have this anti-rejection medicine so that your body will accept this kidney and you can thrive in life, essentially. Uh, according to Peterson, though, roughly one-third of people who undergo transplant never have the prescription filled. Roughly one-third of those people never go to the pharmacy and have this very, very necessary medication filled. Of, the, of the, the two-thirds that do, half of them never take the medicine right. They don't, they don't follow the dosage. They don't follow the time in which to take it. So most people who experience kidney failure, when it gets to the point where they finally get to have some control in their hands through the taking of medication to help themselves, most people don't help themselves. Why? Then he looks at the statistics regarding pets how we treat our animals, people with cats and dogs who are ailing, and we take them to the vet. We're much more proactive statistically of taking a pet to the vet to be seen, to be treated, get medication for a pet. We're, we, we're much more proactive to give a cat or a dog the proper medication in the, in the right time than we are ourselves. Why? 
comes to human value and what we see in one another, but especially what we see in ourselves. He writes this, but you know so much more about yourself. You're bad enough as other people know you, but only you know the full range of your secret transgressions, insufficiencies, and inadequacies. No one is more familiar than you with all the ways your mind and body are flawed. No one has more reason to hold you in contempt, to see you as pathetic, and by withholding something that might do you good, you can punish yourself for all your failings. A dog, a harmless, innocent, unselfconscious dog is clearly more deserving. We exchange love for power. The result is shame. A life of shame cannot flourish. A life of shame cannot thrive and it cannot bear fruit. We see this is the mercy of God. That while we were yet sinners, caught in our shame, Christ died for us. Do you, do you know what it means that you've received mercy from Christ? It means you, you, you have worth. It means you have value. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. You have value because of the mercy that you've received. Now, this changes your being. You are now a being of intrinsic value because of the mercy of Jesus. But when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the ones who are pouring out mercy on other purpose, on other people, you're now fulfilling another purpose. Uh, uh, you're, you're fulfilling another value, an instrumental value that God is using you to demonstrate mercy to somebody else. You see, the mercy you receive flows through you to somebody else. This is what it means to flourish and to thrive. This is what it looks like to, be, to bear fruit in life. We are not reservoirs of mercy, and the mercy is just meant to end up and just stay contained in us. We're meant to be conduits of mercy for other people. See, that's what it means to flourish and to thrive. That's what it means to, to, to function the way we're supposed to function, to see the value that we have, but the value that comes from Jesus and how we need to demonstrate it to others. This morning, we're going to close the message by taking of communion together. The elements are found in the shelves on the inside of the row, if you'll take those and pass those down. And I, I want to say at the outset of this morning that um, communion is a symbolic ceremony. And one of the things that it symbolizes through ceremony is this. I need mercy. It is a statement where somebody says, I need mercy. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I'm good, then this isn't for you. If you're here this morning and you're like, I, uh, you know what, I, I don't need mercy. I don't need a savior. Right? This, the, 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 the state that you're talking about doesn't make sense to me. I'm cool then that's right. For the rest of us who need mercy, this is for you. In Christ Jesus, we have mercy poured out. And, and the recognition that at the cross, Jesus made an end to the punishment of our sin. And through the giving of the Holy Spirit living in us, look, to be full of mercy means to be full of the Holy Spirit. 
Because of the Spirit living in us, we now have power over sin. But, but the, to recognize that we're not done yet, we're still in process, that we're being conformed into the image of Christ, and it's, it's a slow process, and it takes time, and in the process, we need mercy. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I need mercy, this is for you. In this, we recognize that here's, here's Jesus saying, here's my body, it's given for you because you need mercy. And here's my blood, it's poured out for you so that you can have a relationship with God because you need mercy. Because you need mercy, it shouldn't end there. I, I want you to ask this question. As you, as you meditate on, on, on this communion elements this morning, ask yourself this question. Who do I need to show mercy to? Jesus, you show me mercy. Who do you want me to show mercy to? Who do you need to show mercy to? And, and be clear. He's already given you mercy. He's not saying show this person mercy and I'll give you mercy. You've already been given mercy. You don't show mercy in order to earn mercy. But you show mercy because you've been given mercy. Who do you need to show mercy to this morning? Maybe this week. As you ponder that question, as a name comes to your mind, take it to Jesus and partake of these elements. I'll read the words of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for mercies that are new every morning. Thank you that within you there is no end to mercy. Thank you that that's what you extend to us first because you saw us where we were. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for absorbing our debt, for taking our place. Thank you for the mercy that you poured out on the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us of the fact that we have been saved from the punishment of sin, but we still live in the presence of sin. It is the filthy water that we swim in and breathe in, and we need help. We need your mercy. We pray for the day, Lord Jesus, when you return. But in the meantime, fill us with your mercy and enable us to, to bless others with this mercy. Call to our minds even now who we need to show mercy to. In the name of Jesus, amen.